I thank Dale for that uh, generous introduction. My name is Frank. I'm an alcoholic and uh, happy to be amongst you. Uh, and I'm getting better. I used to start my talk from my chair, so I'd be on you know, the third or fourth paragraph by the time I got to the uh, microphone. Uh, someone asked me earlier if I'm still flooded with anxiety, and I admitted that I was. It just doesn't come four days before. Now it comes, you know, 40 minutes or a half hour before. Uh, and I guess that's, uh, that's the way it is for me. I used to try to mask the fact that uh, I was a nervous person. You know, I would create a persona and lead you to believe I was, that was other than true for me. Now I don't bother. You know, it, uh, it erupts anyway, and, uh, as you know. Uh, uh, also, uh, Dale and, and, and the rest of the committee men have created a nice, comfortable space for me, and I appreciate being your guest. It's a nice place physically to be, and I feel uh, it's all going to be okay here. And uh, it wasn't always like that for me in my life. I've, uh, most of my adult life and, and my childhood were uh, uh, flooded with fear. I, I always uh, I liked Roscoe, Roscoe the way he read that. Uh, Roscoe uh, re uh, read the uh, the uh, fifth chapter, and uh, the part where it comes. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional mental disorders, and my heart would pound when I first heard that. And then when it goes on, the capacity to be honest. <laughs> I never had any capacity to be honest. I came out of the womb lying, you know. Uh, <laughs> And uh, my, uh, 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 Dale mentioned Bob P., and uh, he, uh, he tells a story uh, of uh, how you can tell uh, an alcoholic's lying. You watch their mouths. <laughs> and if they're moving, the mouth's moving, they're lying. <laughs> but I think there's some indication of how I was uh, as a kid. I, I just had uh, little... Uh, distinction between, between what went on in my head and the reality of the environment. First of all, I was, I'm not the first of my kind. I come from a family with mental disorder. I was born in a mental hospital. Uh, we have a friend from Long Island here, and uh, I was born in Central Islip State, State Hospital, which you can see from the freeway, and it's a very dark, foreboding place. Every time I go out to the eastern end of Long Island, I kind of blow it a kiss uh, <laughs> that, I, that I got out of there early and didn't go back. Uh, and uh, a, a, a lot of people in New York have been back, you know, and back, and back. Uh, once was enough, apparently, for me. The, uh, so, so anyway, uh, neuroses and nervousness and stuff is an old friend for me. I know how to be uncomfortable. The miracle for me with Alcoholics Anonymous is getting feelings of comfortability. You know, just feeling that I'm safe, that I'm okay. Uh, my family weren't particularly... Uh, economically hard-pressed uh, or intellectually hard-pressed, but emotionally was not our long suit. You know, we just couldn't play anything emotionally. So we sat around pretending nothing was wrong, uh, which is a good way, as alcoholics know, uh, to live your life. Uh, and yet we were sitting on a volcano. We were sitting on, a, a, you know, the San Andreas flaw, fault, where it could go at any minute, and did, but you never knew the minute, you know, when that was going to happen. So, you know, it was a white-knuckle trip, uh, and that's a hard way to live. Uh, and you, you, you get a metabolism living like that, and you get uh, flooded with your own chemicals, as some of, some of you might know, and you live an intoxicated life. Fear can produce its own toxicity long before you pick up a drink. And I know what it is to be drunk without picking up an, uh, um, a drink. And it was probably like that. I was kind of that, uh, I'm not going to get too intricate. I'm just going to throw out a couple of things here. Uh, I'm going to try to be simple. <laughs> it's best for me and I think for you. Uh, I often talk about things I don't own, you know, uh, which I'll... So, which is very confusing, and the more I get into it, the more I realize I'm not clear on it either. And everybody just, just squirms at, you know, for me and tries not to look at me, you know. Uh, anyway, I uh, uh, had lots of reasons to, uh, to drink. I was a kind of a person, I, was, uh, I, was, I call myself uh, 
you know, I had my foot on the brake and the accelerator in the same moment. You know, I desperately wanted to be noticed, but I dropped dead if I was called on, especially if I had to get up and uh, recite something. I was good with one-line answers. You know, I'm a typical neurotic. You want to staple my mouth shut because I talk forever. Uh, and, uh, but, and, and I was good at math, you know, where you could get the answer out before they finished the question. I was like that. Uh, and, uh, but if I had to stand up to recite French, forget it. I was paralyzed with fear and knew that they were going to call on me, and they did, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and when I'm like that and I'm corrected, I can't say the thing in the correct way. I keep saying it in the, the wrong way over and over and over again, you know, and that paralysis of self-centeredness and uh, which was very, which became the hallmark of my drinking. You know, I would stay trapped in the same magnetic field, humiliating myself again and again and again, like a like a fly on on flypaper. You know, f- trying desperately to get out, but not moving anywhere. You know, I would be like that in these humiliating uh, situations. Anyway, you get the you get the impression. I. Uh, I also didn't want to be noticed. I, I, uh, I had a nervous disposition, and uh, uh, like the big book talks about Jim, with his, he was fine except for this nervous disposition. I identify with Jim. Uh, and uh, people would ask, ask for Frank when I was there, you know, because I would give up these signals and move around so quick and really didn't want to be there uh, that they wouldn't see me. You know, they just sort of got in with that. Whatever my screams were, they heard them. Uh, anyway, this per- personality found alcohol. <sighs> and it was love at first sight, like I hear in so many of our stories. Uh, the good thing about me and my alcoholism, and um, there's no long training program necessary to become an alcoholic. Uh, you know it's going to work from the first sip. And I would say it's going to cost what it costs. You know, I knew that. Uh, I knew there was a contract between me and alcohol from the first. You know, it was anything that's going to be this good, make me feel this good, has got to be costly. You know, I didn't. Uh, I was not surprised I became an alcoholic at all. I was surprised I didn't notice it or <laughs> uh, earlier. Uh, but uh, and no one else was surprised I became an alcoholic. I might add either. And they were screaming at it for years and I, at me, and I didn't hear. Uh, but anyway, it brought probably the, I, I, I hope some of you noticed I tried to smile from time to time when I sat there before it became my time to speak. Someone said, Frank, you look like American Gothic when you're sitting up there or, or you're going to a hanging, you know. Uh, <laughs> God's sakes, this is a program of attraction. <laughs> look like you're happy about being around. So I would try every once in a while to force this little quick smile so I wouldn't look like I was in such pain. Uh, but anyway, that's the kind of uh, person I knew. But alcohol, the promise of alcohol, produced uh, relaxation in me in a profound way. Uh, I mean, the thought of a drink, like Pavlov's dog, you know, you sh- shook the little bell and the salivary glands would stop. It was like that for me with alcohol. If I met you on the street, I would say, let's have a drink. And the thought of a drink coming would calm me enough that I'd remember your name, I could start some, even clumsily, but I could start some social interchange, but I could begin the, the exchange that human beings uh, go through. Before that, I was so paralyzed in saying the wrong thing. I was so socially clumsy, and am. I mean, if I can possibly say the wrong thing in a social situation, I will. You know, like I'll spill the juice all over somebody's new outfit, some kind of, just to make it unbearable for me to be in the room for another second. Uh, that's, that's, that's the way I, I, man against himself, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Uh, any shred of possibility I may have had a, a calm evening has to be destroyed in the beginning, you know, so, so we get that out of the way. Uh, and, uh, but alcohol produced in me, they say there are no no nutrients in alcohol. I quarrel with that because there were lots of nutrients in alcohol. I mean, the only ones I was ever interested in, 
I was never interested in uh, vitamins or uh, protein molecules or anything like that. I, uh, the booze molecules were the ones really that, that, uh, that impressed me and fed a part of my brain and worked for me. You know, alcohol worked for me during the uh, big part of my adult life. It made life possible for me. It furnished me with hope and uh, a sense of exhilaration, a sense of fusion with people that I, I would never have experienced without it. I, I, you know, I identify with these kids suiciding because that's the way I was. I mean, I didn't see the fact that I had lots of gifts, that, uh, that the world made a space for me, that people felt compassion and love and generosity toward me. I never was able to feel that. What I felt was I was deprived, I had been uh, you know, I, the, 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 uh, the empty part of the glass, whether the glass is half empty or the glass is half full, I could in, instantly know what was wrong with this picture. You know, once in a while they'll say, what's wrong with that picture? I know what's wrong with that picture. I live near Central Park, which is a nice, nice area in New York to live in. I take a bicycle to work most days. And on a gorgeous spring day, you know, with the daffodils, and the, uh, once in a while you get a clean, clean air day in New York, you'd be surprised to learn. Uh, but uh, if, I, if I'm in the wrong psychic space, in the wrong spiritual center, on the way through this park on a sun-filled spring morning, I can find the broken benches, the lamps, the graffiti, everything wrong with it, and have ten letters to write to the parks department uh, that morning. You know, that's, that's the way I can be. That's why I need a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm that temperament. I have never been released from that temperament permanently. You know, I get uh, a marginal reprieve a day at a time if I'm alert. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's what the program, that's what the tools of Alcoholics Anonymous are about. Not for me surviving alcoholism. That was a gift of God. I just played that ace as long as I could. I went wherever, you know, when I came into AA, I came into New York Intergroup, so I have a very special part in my uh, heart for intergroups and central offices. Um, I, uh, just one day it was over, uh, and uh, I entered uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, through an intergroup. And uh, alcohol had been central to my life, simple. Alcohol was the the single encounter with power that I'd had in my life. With a drink in my hand, I was invincible, you know? And especially if I had some pills to calm me down, too, and a cigarette in my hand, and a hundred bucks in my pocket. Now, who, who could hurt me? <laughs> you know, what bad was going to happen that day? Who was going to tell me anything? I mean, that's what it was. I, I, uh, I had an instant connection, as I mentioned, with alcohol. I went wherever it was. It was like I, I, the, the, the magnetic field and I was the, the metal shavings. I would form patterns around the alcohol. You know, if you took it to your kitchen, I was there, sitting on your stove, leaning on your refrigerator. If you moved it to the garden, I was there, falling in the rhododendron or into the barbecue. Uh, in a desperate way, I wanted to, be, tween, I, it, I wanted to be, be between the people and the booze. You know, I, I wanted to be the bartender. Because talk about, talk about power. <laughs> you know, because on the way to your glass, I could splash a little more into mine. I never measured a drink in my life. You know, uh, we would just splash them into the biggest glasses I could get. Uh, and if I went to your house and you produced a jigger, that was it. You know, I, I wouldn't be back that way. You know, sort of, oh, one for you and one for me, Frank. And then two hours go by before anyone says anything about uh, another drink. I would be crazy by then. Uh, I liked it if you met me at the door before I got my galoshes off and had a drink in my hand and say, hey, Frank, uh, here's your drink. After this, you help yourself. And there were unopened, unopened bottles behind the open ones. <sighs> then we could relax. I was, I was going to be there a while. No need to hurry. You know, take your time. Say what you want to say. Uh, that's the only time I could be present to people. And people knew it. You know, even people with marginal interests in alcohol 
recognize that it brought uh, a meaning to my life, a value, a sense of passion. Uh, I cared about things when I drank. You know, we could uh, raise an army and march. Anything, <laughs> anything was possible. You know, I especially loved the, uh, the kitchens at two and three in the morning. Kitchens are like this, holy places. You know, uh, uh, fusion happened in kitchens. You know, uh, we, uh, one more drink and we could wrap it up. You know, whatever it was. You know, pleading, pleading with each other to stay in the moment. And, and time was not oppressive when I was drinking. You know, there seemed to be time enough for anything. We were always going to be in the kitchen. You know, it didn't seem, work didn't seem necessary. <laughs> American industry could wait. You know, in those moments is when I captured, I think, whatever higher power experience I had, what Jung talked about, uh, the, the, the low-level search for union with God that the alcoholic had in his correspondence with Bill, those were the moments that I wanted to, to get. Now, those moments come with high price tags for alcoholics. Maybe they're micro-moments, but they were the only ones I had. They were the only benchmarks for sanity that I had ever experienced. Sanity in the sense of feeling whole, uh, that the quarrels in my head had somehow subsided, that I didn't feel the, the breath of reality on my neck, that I could really be there present in that moment. I mean, unless I had had the, the drug experience, the drug-induced experience of alcohol furnishing that, I wouldn't know what poetry was about. I wouldn't know what exchange and, and love and those kinds of feelings were that people talked about because I was so frozen in fear before I found... Uh, fear produces numbness. Fear produces a rationalization. I was a rational man. You know, as long as we could uh, behave rational, I could control my emotions or try to. And uh, so I, I did everything I could or had to to keep my emotions in line. The only time my emotions came up was when I had calmed the left hemisphere of my brain enough with, or numbed it or used it as a narcotic, whatever. Alcohol to me was both a narcotic and a stimulant. You know, it killed my fear for a lot of my time, numbed that kind of uh, anxiety center that I had, and produced an enormous amount of exhilaration and uh, a sense of, we've got to do something now. You know, I was a, the kind of person, uh, if nothing was happening, you got on the phone and made something happen. You know, that kind of sicky. If you had any kind of uh, peace going, we stirred things up. You know, who can we bother now? You know, that kind of thing. Thinking we were doing benefits for people. You know. uh, I was very cause-minded. I was against the war in the 60s, uh, and, um, and people knew it. Uh, people appreciated that. I worked for drug companies uh, and uh, pharmaceutical companies and their uh, advertising agencies, so I had unlimited access to pills. Uh, and took them. I walked around like a little M&M factory uh, because I, I was the kind of alcoholic who, who uh, I never had a thermostat, you know, uh, something you hear people, normal drinkers will say, I've had enough. Those words never came out of my mouth. Uh, people would scream, he's had enough from across, across a crowded room. But I never felt I had enough. Uh, never felt that. Or, or the worst with social drinkers, they don't even notice there's a glass of wine in front of them or a drink there. They just talk and carry on their lives. They don't even know that that's there. I know it's there. I mean, I'm sober a long time and I still watch it. Uh, I flew across country with a man once who stirred his drink to death. I couldn't look out the window. I couldn't read my magazine. I was just fascinated and wa wanted to scream at him. Drink it so I can read my magazine, for God's sakes. That's what you do with them, and you get another one. Oh. People who came to my house were bombed in, a, in an hour, and their wives never let them come back again. Uh, uh, 
And, and I had lots of signals that I was in over my head. As I said, I kind of knew I was, I was in a, in a high-risk game. Alcohol is a high-risk game. But when it's the only game in town, that's what you play. You play the only ace you got. And the only ace I had was I was a drinker. I remember in college, uh, people would say, uh, let, let Frank drive, you know, after we bashed around town. And, uh, uh, because I, I would be like shifting into second gear at two in the morning when everybody else was hanging out, trying to jump out of cars and things. <clears throat> I'd wanted to go out some more. That kind of thing. A, a, an indication you were going to have trouble with alcohol or any drug is your capacity for it is, uh, begins to grow. So I was proud. I mean, I didn't do much else well, but I felt I drank well. And I got one or two people might, might have said, you drink well, Frank. And those, those were etched in my head. You know, has, kinda, I thought I was adorable when I drank. You know, <laughs> I don't know where I got that, that mental picture. Every once in a rea- uh, while, the, the reality would, would uh, come into my f- life like an eruption of some kind of earthquake. The, the reality of the fact that I wasn't adorable, it would become grotesque, would come out. But I'd drink away that moment, or I'd peel away that moment, or I'd distract myself from that reality, or change the people. What bothered me most about my alcoholism was not my, what I experienced. You know, it was not throwing up or trying to throw up, or, or uh, you know, waking up in my own apartment with torn clothes and uh, no money and all that stuff, so, and, and uh, wanting to know what day it was. I always remember that. What day is it? Am I supposed to be at work? You know, I couldn't tell. Or uh, if it were 5 o'clock, whether that was a.m. or p.m., you know, all those incredible, or was it Monday or Friday or something? Or sometimes you would find out it was Saturday, and it was like a million-dollar lottery you would won. <laughs> you could, you could go out and drink again, you know, and have, on a weekend you could have three drunks in a day. I mean, and that was exciting. I mean, that was a relief to know you still had two more to do. Uh, and, and to live like that is astounding. I wouldn't be telling a lot of people that. I, uh, I shouldn't be telling this story. I'm always amused they ask the alcoholic to tell his story. You know, uh, I'm the last one that's, knows much about my story. I was in blackouts. Uh, uh, the, the neighbor who lived down the hall knew more about my drinking and experienced more of it than I did. Uh, remember that thing about, uh, I never saw a purple cow, I never hoped to see one, but I could tell you anyway, I'd rather see than be one. Well, I'd rather, rather be an alcoholic than see one. You know, we're not pretty to watch, and I've worked with enough people, and yet we think we're cute, you know? And that makes it worse, you know, when you see this fool, this bloated, uh, middle-aged asshole, uh, trying to look cute and sober. And that's the way I, I live most of my life, lying. You know, I'm fine, oh, fine. You know, looking like somebody taking an emery board across my eyeballs and, uh, and yet going through American industry like... Uh, we had everything targeted and we were proceeding dead ahead. <laughs> All that crap. Oh, I'm surprised I got away with it as long as I did. You know, I looked like I was working and I looked like I cared, I guess, or something. Uh, but I escaped longer than most. I would uh, lived in uh, California. I don't know what, I usually don't talk about California because it came at the end of my drinking and they're just little fragments I remember, like drunken dress. I was... When a, when, uh, some achievements in my life. I was the first one to be videotaped in, uh, in uh, Redwood City uh, for drunken driving. And, <laughs> and that was a first. My lawyer was surprised they had that. That was a, a new technology for him. <laughs> he wanted more money. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and a psychiatrist would interview you in front of the cameras, but, and it was Christmas, around Christmas time. But, but as the luck of the alcoholic was, they took me, I was in my Santa Claus mood, you know. <laughs> There's a little good in everybody, and uh, the psychiatrist looked, uh, on the videotape, looked mean and provoking. 
so they settled for reckless driving and I escaped again. Uh, had it been five seconds later, I'd have been strangling the psychiatrist on camera. You know, that kind of change of mood, quick, like a summer storm would sweep over me. Uh, that's what bothered me most about my alcoholism. I started to say, not what I experienced, but what other people saw. What I see today are the cosmetic effects of alcoholism, the visible parts, not being able to say what I wanted to say or realizing I was a fool. You know, pride uh, is my biggest character defect and probably saved my life because shame was the most powerful emotion I could feel. The only thing that could get through all the drugs and all the booze uh, had any hope to getting my attention was for me to disgrace myself, to embarrass myself in front of other people. Because uh, one of the, I had lots of drives in my life, and one of them was to be liked by the postman. You know, everybody had to like me. I just didn't like anybody, especially if I was drunk, and I knew somebody in the room didn't like me. I couldn't leave it alone, you know. That'd be the one I'd provoke. You know, I'd, uh, I had lots of those death wishes. Um, uh, like at the industry uh, party, people loved me and tried to help me. I, I, one time I was a director of advertising for a large drug company and uh, had five agencies who protected me. They'd all say, well, he must be at the other agency, you know, when I would be lost. Uh, and, uh, or he just left here. You know, all of those lies. Uh, and uh, what I had was a four-hour lunch, you know, um, liquid. And, uh, but anyway, I had a lot of those things. And, and people would say, you know, Frank, get out of this, this I industry Christmas party uh, because what I'd have a need to do would be to tell everybody off, you know, my boss or the chairman of the board or his wife or whoever, and they'd say, get, get him out of here, and they'd take me out and I'd come back and back and back. You know the kind of drunk. That's the way it was. Uh, alcoholism is going through the stop signs. You know, just keeping doing and doing and doing and doing the same kinds of stuff, you know. That's what got my attention. Had I could, could I have changed my life, I would have done it. But not being able to change it and being keep doing the things that I knew were destructive to me, uh, uh, particularly provoking the people I needed or, or felt tenderness toward, uh, ruining the, that kind of opportunity, that got my attention. I hadn't worked for for a year before I came into AA, and I live uh, on 79th Street, West 79th Street, and there's the, the Dublin houses in the next block on the way to the subway. And I would stop there just for a couple of beers. Now, I didn't even think beers were drinking. You know, beer or wine were kind of in the food category, and you were giving your liver a rest if you were just into that stuff. Unless you were into the Dry Rob Roy's or the brandy, you really weren't drinking anything. Uh, and I believe that. I mean, I you know, incredibly well-educated, I thought, and uh, uh, only I thought, in, uh, in nutritional matters. I worked on uh, lots of drug accounts and uh, people involved in the field of nutrition and could talk very impassionedly to you about not drinking and taking pills, as I drank and took pills. I was very separated from reality as far as I was concerned. The rules of life just never applied to Frank, you know, whether they were the Ten Commandments or drinking and pilling or drinking and smoking and, and in bed fires and drunken driving. You couldn't take the car keys away from me because cars were freedoms. Cars go places. I have to go places. Because if I was here with you, my head would be, I wonder what they're really doing down the street. They must be really having fun down there. And I'd have to be there. You know, like Tennessee Williams wrote about the birds without legs. They're always in the air. They eat in the air. They're born in the air. They die in the air. They mate in the air. They never alight any place. That was the way my alcoholism was. I was always driving somewhere, always going someplace. Uh, I don't know how many New Year's Eves I've spent in the car on the way to still another party that I couldn't find. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Went by it again, Frank. Get another swipe at it. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, people would pray I didn't show up at their homes. You know, because... Frequently, I would show up with somebody I'd met 10 minutes before who wasn't in any better shape than I was. And you can imagine arriving three, four hours late for a dinner party with somebody else and uh, people finally ate thinking you were dead. And, uh, and then the dead come to life here with, 
with a friend uh, to spoil the rest of your, your evening. <laughs> That's the kind of adorable drunk I was. Um, any, any, anyway, I ended up in AA one time, one day. It was just over. Into my consciousness came, uh, came to call Alcoholics Anonymous on June 10th, 1970. And I acted on that impulse. I had a lot of other impulses in my life that I didn't act on, like jumping off uh, roofs, like uh, hanging myself as an old one, which was to persist four and a half years in recovery. Uh, But I acted on that one. I couldn't spell Alcoholics Anonymous, so I had to ask information for it. And I got in touch with New York Intergroup. A woman was alive at that time, Mary Ellen. And she said, where are you? And I told her, and she said, you have to come down here. And that saved my life. And I've been in AA custody ever since. Uh, uh, I thought they'd go out for beers. She, she asked if I wanted anything. And uh, I don't know what I expected. Everybody says, well, what do you expect from AA? I, I didn't know anybody who didn't drink, and I didn't want to, you know. I mean, if there was somebody around not drinking, I thought, oh, shit. what, are they watching us? And they were, you know. Uh, <laughs> had to. Uh, so, I mean, I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, and, and New York Intergroup at that time, they're in a fancy building now, but at that time they were in a loft building with uh, beer cans in the elevator and cigarette butts. And uh, I don't know, I, I thought I'd, I'd be in a very clinical setting. I, by the way, I hadn't worked in a year, but I wore a three-piece suit. This is a hot June day. I was, it looked like I was going to uh, burst from edema I was very bloated, red, uh, wine sores. An old friend for me were wine sores, those eyes I talked about. And yet I had a haircut every 10 days. Uh, people thought, my secretary thought I had a toupee because I could be in a, a monsoon or a hurricane and my hair never moved. It was so nervous and, uh, and uh, short. And uh, so, I, so I walked into intergroup and... Uh, I, I thought I was fine, uh, and uh, and I thought they'd go out for beers or something that I could uh, understand them. And uh, uh, Mary Ellen gave me the New York Post crossword puzzle to do. She, she, you know, just so she could answer the phones and they could get on with their lives. They asked me to sit there, and uh, I, at that 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 night I had. Uh, a dinner appointment with uh, a president of a small drug company that had always rescued me. I always kept these little people around that would help me, you know, who saw my good when I couldn't. And I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd use them like old coins, you know. I'd go get the old coin to, to use them, and then I'd call them and, uh, and get a dinner with them, and then they'd get on the horn and try to scare me up a job or something. Uh, because my problem was I needed a job, you know, and I did need a job. I mean, you, you can't finance alcoholism unemployed, you know. Uh, it's self-limiting. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they, they had agreed to meet me, and they were one of the people who tried to keep the line open, even though the last thing they wanted to see me in their home for dinner. But anyway, they got the... Uh, or no, they, di- they didn't even invite me out. They lived in Morristown, New Jersey, which you could never, I could never find. Uh, so they were coming into the city that night to meet, meet me. So she, they had had their car washed and the, her hair done and a sitter got, gotten and everything else like that. And I kept telling this Mary Ellen, but I have to go to that dinner tonight. I have to go to that dinner tonight. I have to go to that important dinner tonight. She kept saying things like, I'd cancel the dinner if I were you. I'd cancel the dinner if I were you. I'd cancel the dinner if I were you. And finally, I called them and canceled the dinner. And what a relief, you know, the people felt. They just didn't have to watch me another night. So that kind of startled me <laughs> that, that these people were right. And I stayed, I stayed at Intergroup all day until the meeting that night. And I went into, it was a Thursday, and I went into Trafalgar uh, meeting. And it was a beginner's meeting, and the man who spoke spoke... Uh, about a long trip he had to Australia. I was to meet that man many, many times later, and he said he'd never been to Australia, and he never said that story. You know, but that, that's what I had heard. Uh, there was a lot of that kind of stuff for me. 
I mean, I heard stories that weren't said, and, uh... This is the end of side one. Turn tape over now to hear side two. weren't there, you know, and, uh, but that was an old thing for me. I was very used to that. Uh, I would just kind of keep quiet until you told me what was happening, you know, and then I could feel comfortable. Yeah, I saw that too, you know. <laughs> uh, you live with madness long enough, you accommodate to it uh, and incorporate it into your life. And I knew what, I knew how to live like an hysteric, you know. What I didn't know was how to live like a normal person. You know, I wanted to run General Motors. I didn't think much was wrong with me. And I couldn't feed myself. I literally couldn't feed myself. I still had lots of stuff left. Uh, I hadn't filed my income taxes for five years. Uh, I got very nervous thinking about it. My first sponsor at a meeting said he hadn't filed for 10 years. So I asked him to be my sponsor. I said, well, Jesus. There worse than me here, <laughs> which was an enormous relief. I was so intense. I took myself so seriously. Somebody wrote when Sylvia Plath died that uh, Sylvia overvalued her own sorrows when she suicided, and that's the way I was. Anything that happened to me was heavy, you know. If you had killed your mother, I'd say, no big thing. What are you so nervous about? Now, pull yourself together. Don't tell the others. It's okay. It's been done before. Shakespeare wrote about it. What are you so upset about? If I had a pimple, I was inconsolable, you know? <laughs> I would hear voices telling people, it's, nobody sees it or anything, but I couldn't hear it. I mean, I was so locked into, everybody knows this about me. You know, that kind of incredible amount of self-absorption. That's not a, much of an under, overstatement. It really wasn't. The best thing about me is I came to AA in June. It's the best month to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You stick to the chairs. You, know, it, you come in the summer, you stick to the metal chairs. You know, uh, and it's hard to leave if you're a people pleaser with a chair stuck to you. you know, uh, they notice. You, know, <laughs> you can't go sneaking out. Uh, and I've stayed, I've, I've, I've adhered to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, like, uh, if, you, if you take a bug with enough velocity, velocity and hit it against the wall, it'll stick to the wall. Well, my alcoholism was violent enough to fling me into alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, with enough violence and velocity that I stuck. I've seen people not stick. You know, they had other distractions. I had no distractions. You know, nobody wanted to be in my company, so I mean, my phone didn't ring a lot uh, with alternative proposals. <laughs> and yet I thought I was very busy. <laughs> and you know, when you stop drinking, you have a lot of time. A lot of time. You know, I didn't know how much time a whole day had. You know, uh, even though I smoked like a carton of cigarettes a day, I still had time. Uh, I was early places, you know. I'd never been early any place, you know, just, I would, I would drink so much booze getting ready to go drinking, it was unbelievable, you know. Uh, when, you, when you drink to go drinking, you're an alky, you know. Very few people, you know, have uh, broccoli to go have broccoli, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but I, uh, Lots of those kinds of things. Alcoholism isn't drinking when you want to drink. Everybody drinks when you want to drink. You know, Alcoholism is drinking when every cell in your body says, for God's sakes, Frank, you're not going to have another drink. When people you love and need say, you're not going to do any more, are you? And you push them out of the way and you get another drink and another drink and another drink. Anyone who watched me during my alcoholism would say, that man is trying to experience unconscious time. And yet I thought most of my adult life, I was, I was in a desperate attempt to live. That alcohol was the adhesive for my life, for my psyche, for my wounded soul. That alcohol was the bomb. But anyone who watched me would say, that man wants to die. 
he wants to physically, emotionally, and spiritually, or any way, die. I mean, the way I chug-lugged him and, and gulped. and I was, If I was drinking this one, my head was on the next one. I mean, they would say, that's a sickie. And yet, I didn't see anything wrong with me. My friends tried to filter out that frame, you know, not to see that, or try not to see that as long as they could. And I, of course, didn't want to see that. Alcoholism is going through the stop signs. That's alcoholism. When you drink, when you don't want to drink again and again. And that's what we treat in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the reality, I believe, of my alcoholism and other people. I mean, sometimes we, we hear talks in here like we had choices. I didn't have a choice. When I drank, I drank because I had to drink. I mean... It had a life of its own. It just took me where it wanted to take me. I was flung into AA with the same randomness that uh, other alcoholics are flung into fires, homicides, and suicides. Now, what do you do with a life? You know, when Caitlin Thomas, when Dylan died, Caitlin Thomas wrote a book, Leftover Life to Kill. And that was the frame of mind I came into AA with. I had a leftover life to kill. I didn't... Uh, I didn't have much of an interest in anything that didn't center around drinking. I didn't have much of an interest in people who didn't drink. I didn't have a, I certainly didn't have an interest in being noble or spiritual. Ugh. You know, and I didn't want to live in an AA ghetto. That was clear right up front. You know, I didn't want to go with AA people to AA coffee shops and have AA coffee and AA cookies and talk God, comma, as I understand him. You know, all that stuff. Has it come to this? You know, I mean, I've, I've been some pretty bad places. But <laughs> and yet I went to two and three meetings a day, you know, because it's the only place I'd ever feel, felt safe. For some reason, I, I owed uh, $53,000 when I came to AA. It took me uh, seven and a half years to pay that off. I didn't uh, bankrupt. And, uh, but my whole head was screaming, what am I doing at an AA meeting? I should be working. You know, this isn't my problem. What are these people's? And I, always, I thought you people were alarmists. You know? I said, they're all crazed here. And it's true. We are. But they were always seeing a drink around the corner. You know, and, uh, you know when you're living on the edge of death most of your adult life, you get pretty calm about it. You know, you don't say, what are they so upset about? You know, uh, but uh, I kept coming, and uh, you know, a friend of mine says, every alcoholic stops drinking, Frank. It's nice to be alive when you stop. We in this room just happen to be alive when we stop. Now, what do you do about that is what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't been given to me to survive my uh, alcoholism. I just happen to be alive at the end of it. That was a gift of God. Now, what I do with my life is my gift to God. You know, I didn't need uh, AA to survive the alcoholism, as I said. I needed it to survive a recovery. You know, how do you survive life when you can't drink anymore? That's what AA is about. How do you get any vitality or sparkle to your life? How do you see the glass as half-filled rather than half-empty without a program? You know, how do you get up in the morning and face life without a program? You know, because I'm a, I'm a known depressive, <clears throat> you know, left to my own devices, I'd be over in the corner with some kind of self-destructive game going for me. Because that's what I'm good at, left by my own devices. I'm a pretty evil companion, you know. Uh, so I need, uh, we had lots of good workshops today, which uh, people talked about what, what miracles happen for us here. All I can give is kind of witness to that same thing for me. My life has just profoundly changed as a result of, uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's hard to verbalize. Uh, but most of it is just uh, to, to see, uh, and, and you see it in your own lives. You know, you come to, come to AA, all the cranky little broken people come to the meeting at 8 o'clock. And, uh, you know, if you watch it, I love the, the second chapter of the big book, We Are People Who Normally Do Not Mix. And it's true, one will sit here and the other one will get over there and read a folder you know, we've all been chewed up all day, and uh, don't touch me kind of spirit. And after the meeting, uh, after the meeting gets going, you can feel uh, the temperature change in the room, and the vitality come, 
and uh, the love kind of uh, like a breeze will come into the room. And, uh, and at the end of it, we're all fighting to sit next to Gloria at the coffee shop. There's, everybody's got incredible energy. And something has happened in that hour, that hour and a half. And if you talk to somebody who doesn't know about AA, you say, um, oh, a guy got up and told a story. He, you know, took all the money. He burned his house down. He ran over his wife in the driveway. <laughs> you know, a regular story. And, uh, and everybody lined up after to thank Fred because his talk helped them. You know, they think, they think we're a little ghoulish in here, you know. <laughs> the more carnage, the happier we get. <laughs> Uh, and then they, and then he stopped drinking, and he's, he works now, and uh, he's down at the filling station, and he's cleaned up his tax matters. And they say, you've been going to those meetings for how many years now, Frank? Yeah. And you like them, huh? And uh, people don't know that, that part of my soul has been fed at those meetings. You know, uh, there's a man, uh, Thomas Lewis, or Lewis Thomas. He has two first names. I always get him confused, but he... He was uh, the, uh, uh, talk about a job, he was the medical director for Sloan Kettering, the cancer, the end of the line for a lot of people, the cancer hospital in New York. Not a very uh, happy little environment to, to work, uh, and yet the man's incredibly gifted. He wrote this book, uh, a couple of books, but one called uh, Lives of a Cell. He's a biology watcher. And he talks about uh, a beehive. Uh, that one or two bees by themselves uh, are lethargic and they'll die. They, uh, they just don't have it. But bees in a hive have a whole different intelligence and an energy system and wisdom and uh, they're all running around exchanging fragments of information telling the other ones where the pollen are. There's a whole life in a hive. And that to me is a metaphor for Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, without it, there's no life for me. You know, I know how to be depressed on a sun-filled fall day. Uh, uh, see some others. Uh, you know, having just bought a new shirt and in, uh, in Bloomingdale's for the, for the dance that night. Uh, sometimes you can go to an AA meeting, there'll be group depression meetings too, you know. <laughs> you know, you go there happy and in 10 minutes there's no reason to go on, you know. We're never going to find a way out of this thing, you know. Uh, but someone, someone will at the end of the meeting turn it all around by some kind of statement. Uh, I really just think my life is summed up uh, by the ABCs that uh, Roscoe read, that, uh, that I'm an alcoholic and my life is unmanageable, period. That probably no human power, including myself, or any of the gifted friends I can hire, or, uh, or Khan, or however else, could change that. But God could and would if he were sought. And if I remember, I had lots of higher powers in my life. Money, uh, the opinion of other people. I was intoxicated by your approval. I was intoxicated by achievement. Short-range intoxication, because I could never get enough. Uh, I had lots of false gods, you know. And all of them had an enormous amount of power over me in addition to alcohol and drugs. And I have to remember that. And they're never far from the scene. You know, those can come back into my life tomorrow and rob me of any kind of ability to be happy or comfortable or feel useful or some kind of goodness in my life if I don't put God first. A friend of mine who I, I sponsor now says, God, only God. God, only God. Like a mantra. And that's the key for me. When I'm in that consciousness, which Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps facilitate me being in that consciousness, anything is possible. I drank to make anything possible. I drank to be in the consciousness, drug-induced or whatever, to be in the consciousness that anything was possible. I believe that that magic is true today for us here now, that anything is possible to any of us here if we put God first in our lives and don't be distracted by fear. Fear is an old friend for me. sweeps through my life very quickly. Uh, but I know enough now that I can uh, walk through it. 
You know, uh, faith is in the, the... I always thought faith was a feeling, confidence and exhilaration, a rush. I thought that was faith, you know, like drug rush. You can do it now. Wow, go for it. But faith is the ability to act in the face of doubt. And that's what AA is about. Just enough courage to take the next step and do what I have to do. And those are the gifts I've gotten here. And they're long-term gifts. You know, they'll be with me tomorrow and the day after. I need AA more today than I needed AA in the past, than I needed it yesterday. You know, it's funny how that happens. Anything else in my life, in 24 months I knew it. I had a biological clock. And in 24 months I knew the vocabulary, I knew how it worked. I was bored. One time I said that in an AA meeting. I'll never forget it. Uh, I led a meeting, a topic meeting, and I said that my topic was I'm bored. Well, some people were nice and gracious, and they said, well, you know, you should try this, try that. Another guy, uh, about the fifth man in, said, you're bored. You're bored because you're boring. And he got out and walked out. <laughs> and he, de- he delivered a message to me that I've never forgotten and is very true. Now, if I have a problem, it's me. And, and, and that's why we're driven into service here. I mean, whether we like it or not, you know, uh, my boss, uh, Bob, Bob P., when I first uh, started work at the general service office, would ask me, do you like your job, Frank? And I said, like it? You know, first of all, I thought it was terrific. But I, I, I got a little upset about his asking all the time. And I said, doesn't matter if I like it. You know, it's mine to do. And the same thing is true with service. I don't take my pulse of how I'm doing or, or whether I like the activity or not. My feelings used to run my life. If I liked you, you could do nothing wrong. You know, you were in the red jerseys. If I didn't like you, you couldn't do anything right. You were in the green jerseys, you know. And people never changed, you know. Now, I, my enemies do a lot of good things. And my friends are fools, often, you know. And they're all mixed up in there, you know. Uh, but, but life is full of those kinds of possibilities and changes for me today. That, to me, is sanity. The other way I live. You know, the, 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 the worst curse about mental illness is you think you're okay. <laughs> you know, the, the people who, who believe Napoleon are Napoleon, <laughs> metabolically. Because that's the way I was. I mean, you couldn't tell me. You couldn't show me enough data to, to change me. You know, uh, I would just stop listening to you. That's how I handled it. You don't know. I do. You know, we're not going to play anymore. <laughs> and uh, that's mental illness, you know. And that's the way I live most of my life. It's incredible. I've spoken longer than I intended. I, I'm grateful to be in your company, and thanks very much for asking me.